Morning. It's good to see everybody. Glad you're with us this morning. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and I really are glad you're here. If you're a first-time visitor, uh, Duke RUF, uh, others that are here for the first time, we're really glad you're, you're with us. Um, if you weren't here last week, uh, we just started a new series uh, in the book of Psalms. We've titled this series, The Songs of the Heart. Uh, and last week I preached from Psalm 133, which uh, was a picture and a vision of what we hope and we pray that we are and are becoming as a church, uh, a community uh, that God is gifting uh, to Christ Central. Uh, that was what we looked at last week. And this morning we're going to look at the very beginning of the Psalms. We're going to start in Psalm chapter 1. And so as is our custom, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word together. This is God's Word. should be on behind me. There are a few Bibles. I'm reading from the ESV. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let me pray. God, I ask that you would come now, you would bless your word. God, would you speak? We need to hear from you. Remove me so that Christ is seen. Would you speak to our hearts and to our minds? Would you transform us because the word of God is living and active. It is powerful. We need to hear from you this morning. Holy Spirit, use your word and speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So I'm very excited that we are uh, looking at the Psalms together this fall. Uh, somewhat selfish because I find myself in a place of great need uh, that the Psalms takes us to, uh, a place where the Psalms take, take us to. And uh, I believe we as a church are going to benefit greatly from this gift of the Psalms and the incredible gift of God's Word. Uh, so I'm excited that we get to, to be in it throughout the whole fall, all the way into Christmas. We're going to be in the Psalms. But a very effective teaching and instruction strategy is the strategy of compare and contrast. Compare and contrast. It's a, it's a common strategy that is used to teach or to educate. Right? How many of you grew up writing essays after essay after essay of compare and contrast? I did. Right? I had to compare and contrast all the time growing up in school. Well, the Psalms are a toolbox of prayer. They're a guidebook on the praying life. They are the church's historical prayer book. Uh, Jesus himself found incredible comfort and refuge in the Psalms. And the Psalms... Contrast a praying life with a non-praying life. The Psalms take us into a praying world that contrasts the world that we often find ourselves living in. And this contrast that the Psalms give us is a great way that God uses the Psalms to teach us how to live a praying life. We live in a world that yells at us. We live in a world that demands from us voices telling us and yelling at us to listen, news sources that are telling us to read the headlines, a world that tells us to touch and to taste and to experience all that you can. We live in a world filled with violence. 
the violence in Ferguson, the violence in Iraq that we just prayed for, the violence here in our own city of Durham. We live in a world where power is placed often in the hands of government or in the hands of military force or in the hands of those with money. And as a result, our world that we live in is filled with anxiety. It is filled with self-centeredness and arrogance and ego-driven, power-hungry people, which I am often one of. And Eugene Peterson says that prayer is leaving the world of anxieties. It is leaving an ego-centered world and entering into a God-centered world, a world filled with wonder, mystery, and God. But God knows for us to enter into this world, to leave this life and world that we live in, a non-praying world, it's not automatic, it's not easy. We have to be transitioned into this life. We have to be taken into this life, prepared for a life filled with mystery and wonder and God, what I'm calling a praying life. And Psalm 1 is that preparation. This psalm is the introduction to the rest of the Psalter, to the rest of this book, the Psalms. Psalm 1 paves the way for us to enter into a praying life. So the book of Psalms is a contrast with our world. And Psalm 1 is actually a psalm that contrasts two ways. Two ways. Now this idea of two ways is seen throughout the Bible. If you've ever read or listened to the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus, he talks about two houses, two paths, two trees, two types of fruit, two foundations. This idea of two is seen here in Psalm chapter 1. It's a psalm of two ways. The Bible's language is pretty clear that much of life is binary. What do I mean by that? Much of life is binary. It means that something is either A or B, right? It's, one, it's option one or it's option two. We know this from our experience. We're often faced with decisions and we can either choose option one or option two. We can choose the way that we think is right or the way that we think is wrong. Now, we like to believe that much of life is gray, right? We like to think that a lot of life is ambiguous. But if we're honest, we realize that a lot of life we stand at the crossroads. And we have to decide between option one or option two. And that's why many people find Christianity offensive. That's why some of you here this morning may find this psalm as offensive. Because this psalm tells us there are two ways. Two ways. Not many. Two. There's the way of the wicked. And then there's the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And the psalm provokes us and makes us respond to the question, which way are you on? Which way are you on? This is not contrasting the righteous and the wicked as people, but rather it's contrasting what's influencing a person. Are you on the way of righteousness or are you on the way of wickedness? Again, this psalm's not necessarily saying this morning, are you a Christian or are you not a Christian? All of the Bible kind of asks that question in some sense. This psalm is asking, which way are you being influenced by right now? Are you on the way of righteousness? Are you on the way of wickedness? So let's look and see what this psalmist gives us and how he contrasts these two ways. The first thing that I want us to look at this morning is contrasting delights. Contrasting delights. Look at verse 1. Starts with, blessed is the man. Blessed means happy. means fulfilled. 
Jesus elaborates on what blessed means in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It's fulfilled, it's happy, is the person, verse 1 to 2 tells us, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now it is easy to read that, and I often, growing up, would read that and would think there's this natural progression happening here. Walk, stand, sit. But many scholars have noted that that's not what the psalmist is after in using these three phrases. In describing the way of the wicked, the psalmist is actually giving us three aspects in which the way of the wicked is a departure from God. So rather than describing some physical progression of walk, stand, sit, we're being given a way that the wicked departs from God in their thinking, counsel of the wicked, in their behaving, standing in the way of sinners, and in their belonging, sitting in the seat of scoffers. See, the way of the wicked influences a person to think, behave, and look for belonging in ways that are apart from God. Thinking and behaving apart from God kind of makes sense to most of us. But what does looking for belonging, sitting in the seat of scoffers, what does that even mean? What does that mean? C.S. Lewis says that the scoffer is a bandwagoner. As a bandwagoner. That the scoffer wants nothing more than to be seen with the right people. To be a part of the in crowd. To be in the know. They think they are better than other people. Where have you heard this term bandwagon? Sports. That's right. Somebody, somebody shouted back at me. Yeah, sports. You hear someone called what? A bandwagon fan. Right? A bandwagon fan. This is someone who wants to be a part of the winning team. A fan of whoever is winning, a part of whoever is on top. Bandwagon fans are the worst, right? If you're a true fan, bandwagon fans are the worst. They're always flipping back and forth, always changing which team they're cheering for. And I have to confess that growing up in Georgia as a young boy who loved basketball, I did not know that you could not cheer for Duke and UNC. I just didn't know that. Sorry, Duke Duke students that are here and UNC students. I loved both. Until I was 10 years old and I went to UNC basketball camp and then they told me, you can't cheer for both. Um, But before that, I would have been in the dictionary next to bandwagon fan. I mean, I had my Duke jacket, had my Carolina shorts. I mean, whoever was winning, that's whose attire I was sporting, right? I was flipping back and forth. Whoever was the best team, that was my team, right? Well, what drives and delights the scoffer is the desire to be a part of the in crowd. To feel like they are better than most. And this, co- this contrast of the way of the person who delights in the law of God, one who meditates day and night. That's the contrast here. So you could say that the way of the wicked is a person who delights in being on the in crowd. One who meditates on being in or out day and night. They meditate. They want it. They long for it. This word meditate is the Hebrew word murmur or to mutter. It's used in Isaiah 31 to describe the, a lion standing over its prey. It's a great delight. It's murmuring over. Psalm 2 uses the same word here for meditate in Psalm 2 1 when it says the people plot in vain. That word plot and meditate are the same word. So this plotting, this scheming, this dwelling upon, this delighting to be a part of the in crowd. To be a part of those viewed on top 
And that in crowd, that in crowd can differ depending on what you place great value upon. So it could be dwelling and plotting and scheming to be a part of the crowd that's cool. Or to be a part of the crowd that is tolerant. Or to be a part of the crowd that is attractive. Or to be a part of the Christian crowd. Or to be a part of the athletes or the successful or the wealthy. That you're dwelling and plotting and scheming how you can be a part of the in crowd. And this is contrasted with the one who delights in the law of God. Who meditates on the law day and night. And again, this is a picture of a lion over its prey. Delighting, ready to feast, but this time the person is over the word of God. And what they desire for the most and what they long for the most is to know God in his word. This is not someone merely reading over the Bible, glossing over scripture. This is not someone who's using their seminary education to look at their original language and to interpret it properly. This is someone who is chewing on, delighting in the word of God throughout the course of the day. And the difference between these two ways, these two delights, is that the person who delights to be on the in crowd, which we all can fall into, is always flipping back and forth. That's the definition of bandwagon. Moving back and forth. And the reality is that this person, this person will never rest. They'll never rest. They'll always wonder if they're in. If they're accepted and there will always be a crowd that comes along that is better at whatever you, it is that you hope defines you. If it's intellect, if it's being progressive, if it's good looking, if it's nice, if it's social justice, you will always come across people that are better than you. And if you long to be a part of the in crowd, if that's what drives you, there will be a constant internal unrest in your heart. This person is like a duck on water. May even appear calm, successful, put together, but underneath the water, their feet or their hearts are moving frantically. It's their life. But the person who delights and meditates on God's word finds stability and rest. Finds the truths and the promises of a God who never lies and is always faithful. The person who stands over the word of God like a lion over its prey, hears God tell them, you are in already. You are in. My son came. He lived a perfect life that you could not. Died the death you deserved. Rose victoriously. And because you put your faith in my son, his righteousness is now given to you. My love toward Christ is now given to you, God tells us. And therefore you are in. You're in my family and nothing will ever separate you from my love. That's what God tells us. And that reality alone will allow you to lay your head down at night and sleep well. God's bedrock truths will allow your heart that I know, which is like mine, up and down, back and forth, Wondering if you're in or out, lovable or unlovable, to finally be able to rest. So what's your delight this morning? Are you delighting in God's unchanging love towards you, seen in Jesus, revealed in his word? Are you delighting in the way this world measures based on who is in and who is out? Let's look secondly at contrasting images 
Contrasting images. The blessed person, the one on the way of righteousness, is verse 3, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. The psalmist gives the image of a tree. A tree is an ordinary image, right? A tree is something that everybody in here has seen. Everybody who would have read Psalm 1 was familiar with. It's a concrete image that everybody would be familiar with. When I was eight years old, my dad built me a treehouse in our backyard. And uh, my friends and I loved playing in our treehouse. We loved it. Uh, it. It was our world. No one else could enter. It was, that was our world, our life. We felt secure. We felt safe. We never worried that the tree would fall as eight-year-olds. We never worried that if the wind would blow, that the tree would fall down. An eight-year-old knows a tree has deep roots. Tree is stable, right? They're not easily blown over. They're not easily dug up. I don't know if you've ever tried to dig up an old stump of, a, of an old tree. It's, it is hard. It does not happen very easily, is it? It takes a long time. This is the idea that the psalmist gives us of the blessed man, the, the one on the way of righteousness. He, she is deeply rooted, deeply rooted. So when the winds of adversity blow, which I promise you they will blow in this life, When the winds of adversity financially or in your marriage or with your children or with longings that are unmet or with a death in your family or with your classes and your grades, the one who delights in the word of God, who looks to God in his word, will not be easily blown over, but will be rooted. Because this person knows, like one of the best singers of all time sings, Whitney Houston. With the Georgia Mass Choir, hold on. Help is on the way. He may not come when you want him, but he will come in the right time. Hold on. God is on the way. See, again, you will not be easily blown over because your foundation, your roots will be in the promises and unchanging love of God towards you, not in your constantly changing circumstances. This tree in verse 3 is located in a particular place. It's located by streams of water because its roots are tapping into the river. It's receiving this nourishment and growth and it's producing fruit. Its leaf doesn't wither. So what what is this river? What's this water he's referencing? In other words, what are the resources that God has given us, the church, believers, to tap into for growth and change? What are the resources that we have? I mentioned one already. God's word, the revelation of God to us is one of the greatest resources we have for growth and for change. I was the RUF campus minister at UNC Chapel Hill for five years from 2008, 2013. Loved it. And I've used this before, but it's too good not to use again. Dr. Bart Ehrman is one of the most prominent uh, religion professors at UNC. Not a Christian, uh, but is an incredible teacher rhetorically. And whether he would admit it or not, what he tries to do is debunk Christians. He tries to get Christians to doubt their faith. And the way he starts all of his classes, I find extremely intriguing. He says, how many of you are Christians in this room today? And a lot, because right, we're in the South and everybody's Christian in the South, right? Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the class raises their hands. And like 90, 95% of the class raises their hands. He says, Okay, how many of you have read 
the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And like a few kind of raised their hands, right? And then he asked, how many of you have read all of the Harry Potter books? The whole class raises their hand. And then he says this, if I believed in a God who created all things and has made himself known to his people and has given a book for us to know him and is his revelation to us, I sure would read it over and over and over and over. Why not read it? And he creates that shaky ground for all those Christians who've come in pretty, pretty confident. Now, I don't like what he's trying to do, but I think he's right. As Christians, we believe in a God who has created all things, holds all things together, and we believe the Bible is his revelation to us of himself. What an amazing gift. The Bible. People actually historically died to give us this in our own language. What a gift. What a resource we have. And God also speaks to us on Sunday morning in the public preaching of his word. Now, I'm always amazed uh, on Sundays at times when people tell me things that, that they've heard in a sermon, right? Often, I don't remember planning to say what, I, what they said I said, or uh, I don't remember saying it at all, or even more humbling is when someone takes it differently than the way I meant it, right? God, I really loved when God spoke through you and told me, I was like, I didn't really mean that. <laughs> it's different, right? But here's the truth. God speaks in this place on Sunday morning through his word. The preacher is merely an instrument. And Christians, we're not just given the word of God as a resource. We're also given the spirit of God. And I believe we need more of this. In particular, our denomination needs more of this. The word of God and the spirit of God are always joined together, never separated. But what happens is we get people who love doctrine and love theology and they see people a little bit too emotional, right? And they think, no, 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 we're good. We're good. And yet they shut the windows of their heart to allow the Holy Spirit to move around and lead in God. And then on the other side, we have people that love some emotion, right? Love the Holy Spirit. And they think they're good, right? But then they just deny the realities of the biblical truths and the revelation of who God is, theology. Word and spirit are always joined together and are the two resources that we must tap into to be a tree that produces life and a changed life, uh, produces fruit. So the psalmist contrasts this image of a tree with the image of chaff. Chaff, if you know what that is, J.R. might know since he uh, is familiar with a little bit with agriculture, but uh, I, I'm not. Uh, he came over and looked at my garden and kind of laughed at it the other day. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, but chaff, I looked it up. Let me tell you what it is. Uh, chaff is the light skin that's wrapped around the grain when you harvest it. You can't eat, you can't eat chaff. So the harvesters would crush the grain until the husk was loose. And then they'd toss it in the air with these big pans and the wind would catch the lighter husk, the chaff, would blow them away, and the heavier grain would fall to the ground. Chaff is rootless. Chaff is valueless. And this psalm is saying when the winds of adversity blow 
on the one who is on the way of wickedness, they are tossed in every direction, blown here to there because they have no roots. In the times of adversity, this, this person is sent spinning, looking for something, looking for anything to keep them stable, to hold on to. Success, power, lust, addiction, family. This person is sent spinning, looking for something to give them value, to give them approval. This way has no stability. Two images, tree and chaff. The way of the righteous is rooted in the word of God and the spirit of God and produces fruit, a changed life, a deeply rooted life. And the way of the wicked is looking for something, looking for anything to give them value, to give them stability. But when the winds blow, they're easily blown about. Let's look lastly at contrasting destinies, contrasting delights, contrasting images and contrasting destinies. Verse six says that the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. This word perish is used in two tenses, the present tense and the future tense. The way of the wicked will perish in the present, meaning it will be futile. This way is frustrating. This way you are flip-flopping back and forth, always looking for something to hold on to, never able to rest. It will be futile. And in the final judgment in the future, there will be a declaration made from God. Of depart from me, for I never knew you, because in this life you chose the way of departure from God. And the psalmist contrasts this with verse, the latter part of verse 6. It says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. To know is way more than he's informed with. To know the way of the righteous means he cares. He deeply cares and pursues and identifies with. So a classic children's book uh, called The Runaway Bunny. You thought, any of you read it? Runaway Bunny is a pretty simple story. Uh, it's a little bunny who wants to, to run away. He wants to run away. He comes to his mom and he tells his mom, Mom, I'm running away. And his mother says, well, if you run away, I'll, I'll run after you. Because you're, you're my little bunny. And if, he says, well, if you run after me, I'll become a fish in a trout stream and I will swim away from you. And she says, well, if you become a fish in a trout stream, I'll become a fisherman and I'll go fish for you. And the little bunny keeps coming up with things. Well, I'll become a rock. I'll become a bird. I'll become a sailboat. And the mom keeps coming up with how she will continue to pursue him. I'll become a mountain climber. I'll become a tree for you to land in. I'll become the wind to your sails. And no matter where the little bunny goes, his mother pursues him. That's the gospel. And that's what verse 6 is, It means. That no matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, God pursues those of us who trust in Him. And He identifies with us. The Lord cares deeply and pursues and loves greatly those who may struggle and may doubt and will stumble, but come back to longing to to live on the way of righteousness. He loves us and pursues us so much that He sent His only Son who can identify. With us. As Jesus, the Son of God, Son of Man, stood at a crossroad and had two choices could travel one way or another, the way of wicked or the way of the righteous. He could have departed from his Father as he lay prostrate in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying for the cup to pass, praying for the cross to be taken away, 
He could have belonged to the in crowd. This crowd of power and and influence. But instead, Jesus would go and he would die on a tree. He would die on a tree, for on that tree would come life for everyone who believes. On that tree, Jesus trusted the words of his Father and relied on the Spirit who was with him. And that tree, the cross, produces a radical change, a changing of the world, a redemption and a restoration for all that is broken. And in Jesus, by faith in Jesus, we can experience that life and change now. And we look forward to the time when the tree of life will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And in that place, the stream of God, the river of God, will make happy, will cause delight, will bless all who have walked the way of righteousness. This morning, which way are you on? God welcomes all of us to come and to travel the way of the righteous. To trust in the Lord Jesus who gives us his righteousness. And in doing so, we have a God who walks with us, promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And it's in traveling this way that prepares us to live a praying life in the midst of a non-praying world. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would use the word and spirit. These incredible resources you've given us, your people. To grow us, to root us, to give us stability. God, for those here this morning who knowingly know they've, they want to walk the way of the wicked, would you show them that the way of the righteous is so much better? And all of us who may long to be on the way of the righteous but find us being influenced by the way of the wicked, will you call us back yet again this morning? We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.